This week on the Backtable podcast. I actually use navigation as often as I can and always try to tell the residents to do it as well because, yes, it costs money, but also if you use it on the simpler cases, then when you get to the difficult cases, you already know what you're doing and you're not practicing two things at the same time because you already know how to work in navigation. So for simple surgery, I don't do it. And especially if I don't have anyone with me, but normally there should be a resident. And then often I try to hook up the navigation system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with a hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric ENT, and I have a really awesome guest today. I have Dr. Jens Andersen. He's an otolaryngologist practicing in Skåne University Hospital in Sweden. Dr. Andersen is here to talk to us about the evaluation and management of patients with chronic frontal sinusitis in his practice in Sweden. Welcome to the show, Jens. How are you? Thank you very much. I'm fine. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for coming on. For our listeners, I got to meet Jens at the European Society of Pediatric Otolaryngology. It was a great conference in Liverpool in March, and you were kind enough. There was like a two seats next to you, and Anita J. Kamarna came in a little late to this beautiful banquet and uh, got to sit down. And I... uh, it was it was our pleasure to have <laughs> you there. So yeah. <laughs> so we got to talking, and I was like, you know what? We got to get Jens's perspective on back table. So thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So before we get into our clinical topic, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? I work at the ENT clinic at the Skåne University Hospital, which is a hospital that is spread over two sites, uh, which are the towns of Lund and Malmö. And I don't know if you've heard about Lund University Hospital. It's the more famous one of, of the two. <laughs> and uh, But we spend uh, an equal amount of time on both sites uh, with all non emergency visits located in Lund and emergency consultations in both towns. And outpatient surgery is done primarily in Malmö. I'm responsible for seeing to that things run as smoothly as possible at the Malmö site, including the cooperation with other departments at the hospital, such as the uh, ER and uh, the ICU and pediatrics, etc. And your practice, when we were in Eastport, you'd mentioned that, is it mostly rhinology or do you pretty much see everything in, and you have a special interest in rhinology? I have a special interest in rhinology, yeah. So I mainly see rhinology patients, but when you are the uh, consulting doctor for the junior doctors that are on call, then you obviously get to see all kinds of patients. Can you tell our, our audience a little bit about, you guys have a, an ENT newsletter that you put out and put cases. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, we have a, we have a magazine that comes out with four uh, issues every year. And uh, yeah, I'm surprised you remember that. We are three editors, and I'm, I'm actually one of the editors. I think most of the ENT specialists in Sweden read it. Sometimes it's just stuff for fun. Sometimes it's uh, you know clinical research. Sometimes it's what the residents have done. They need to do a special kind of small paper before they uh, get their exam, and sometimes we uh, publish that as well. We're supposed to publish everyone's, but they don't send it in, so, so we can't. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. Before we get in again into our clinical topic, let's set the stage a little bit in terms of, can you tell us a little bit about the Swedish healthcare system? Sure. So basically the Swedish healthcare system is free. 
if you can call it that, because obviously we pay it through our taxes. I'm not going into politics, but it is a basic human right to have access to equal health care. It's even in the UN Charter from 1948, Article 25, if you're interested. But basically it's free. Kids don't, uh, as a children, they, they don't pay anything. Uh, you don't pay anything for child health care at all, including medication. So sometimes when I when I see uh, American movies, for instance, I'm surprised. I think it was, you know, Four Weddings and a Funeral. Have you seen that movie? <laughs> yeah, it's been a yeah, while. And she, ca- and she can't pay for her kids' asthma medicine. And I, I had such a hard time understanding that when I was uh, younger. Now I know how it works. But yeah, so kids don't pay for health care at all. And uh, the adults, they pay a nominal fee of about 300 Swedish crowns, which is in the vicinity of 27 US dollars per visit, but only until they've reached the limit of what we call the high cost protection, which is currently at 1,300 Swedish crowns, it's uh, 118 US dollars for a year. And so after that, it's free for the rest of the year. Some things are excluded, like certain types of vaccinations. Many are given for free during school years or or when you're younger, but, but some other things you have to pay for. And we do have private care as well, but most private actors are also affiliated with ordinary healthcare system and have contracts uh, providing the same type of care and costs that go with it. And then for medication, you pay the full price for medication unless you're a child at the beginning of a period that is one year long. But also there, there's a high cost protection. So uh, the more you've paid, the larger your reduction so there's an upper limit at 2,600 switch crowns, so it's uh, 235 US dollars. And then after that, medication is free for uh, adults as well. Wow. And so the patients that have government insurance, but also then have supplemental, like maybe another private insurance carrier, why do people do that? Yeah, you don't really have a government insurance. You can have a private insurance uh, because, I mean, public basic healthcare is free. So, so you don't have to have a government insurance. You pay taxes and that's enough. But you can have a private insurance. I mean, you can get an appointment faster sometimes, not necessarily better because sometimes they have to refer you anyway to a, to a government-run hospital. So that's, that's it. That's interesting. So in terms of uh, now kind of getting into our, our clinical topic, um, we're going to talk about chronic frontal sinusitis. Um, how do these patients present to you? What kind of symptoms do they usually have? I knew this question was going to come. And still, I have a hard time answering it because they can can actually come in any number of ways. They can obviously have had problems for a long time with headaches and uh, you know stuffiness and uh, nasal congestion and uh, you know sometimes low grade fever. I actually had this week. I had a, a man who came, I think, originally from Bangladesh, but he'd been in the healthcare system. He'd been seeing his GP for a while and then they referred him to the ophthalmology clinic and and always it's I mean it's easy when you are the last one seeing the patients I sometimes I say that the most useful tool we have is the retrospectoscope so when we see something and and we can tell oh, okay you should have seen this coming but yeah they didn't and and he presented with a swollen um, right eye and uh, then we, when you did the CT scan he had a severe frontal sinusitis with bony wall destruction to his uh, right eye and then also almost like a I mean it's surprised that it wasn't a Potts puffy tumor because he had a destruction in his frontal table of, of the sinus and also actually a bit in the back and uh, towards the intracranial space 
and he had been going with this for a long time. And actually, I think it was dental from, from the beginning because the, one of the biggest mucosils uh, in the maxillary sinus that I've seen and, and his teeth were not that good. Wow, you're, you're right. Sometimes the presentations can be a little indolent and it can take a long time in the frontal sinus because of where it's located. The patients can present. And sometimes they don't, you're right, they don't always look as sick as they should. No, no. I mean, I always see them when they've been to other doctors. So I can only read about how it started because I always see them later when they're ill, when they're worse. Yeah. But you're right. They might have, in addition to the uh, nasal congestion and then drainage, they might have like that low-grade fever, headache, sometimes that, the eye presentation where, you know, acute maxillary sinusitis isn't going to always have as many, maybe, but sometimes it can be hard to tease out. Yeah, yeah. Often they have the, you know, the frontal headache right between the eyes and, and a bit down towards the nasion. Do you have a group of patients where it's isolated frontal sinusitis, or do you find that in your practice they'll still have associated max ethmoid as well? The feeling I have is that it's more often other sinuses involved as well. I would say if someone has an isolated frontal sinus problem, they obviously they can have, but maybe more if they had a trauma before. Sometimes it's, what do you call it in English? Barotrauma in Swedish. Barotrauma, yeah, right, sorry. <laughs> so that can absolutely present as an isolated frontal sinus problem. But uh, more often than not, I would say that more sinuses are involved, in my experience. Yeah, that brings up the next question I was going to ask you is some of the risk factors for chronic frontal sinusitis in terms of risk factors, um, trauma, you know, or history of a frontal sinus fracture or head trauma potentially. What other kinds of risk factors? You said mentioned barotrauma. Is that usually somebody that dives, scuba dives, or flight even? Yeah, sometimes divers come and complain about this, but sometimes also just ordinary people who fly a lot. And uh, we had um, flight attendants, which is obviously very uh, stressful because they can't really work because it hurts like crazy. I actually know what it feels like. I used to have those problems. I was scuba diving when I was younger and I had those. I often pressurized my frontal sinuses with blood and it's not a pleasant feeling. But other risk factors are polyps, for instance. And as this patient I just described, other types of infections like dental infections or if you're immunocompromised or you know, there are a lot of things that actually can predispose uh, for having a frontal sinusitis. We're forgetting one. Yeah, uh, we can stick with that as our case example for this podcast. The dental infections is definitely, I feel like I don't uh, look at the teeth enough or like pay attention to that. But you're right, it leads to deep neck infections, sinus infection. More before, I think it was overlooked. Nowadays, I, I look at the radiography pictures of myself and I always look at the teeth. And uh, if I'm uncertain, I actually call the radiologist and discuss uh, with them because we have some very good radiologists and uh, those I know, I know they look at the teeth. I mean, if they have answered, I really don't need to call them because I know they've looked at it. But if it's someone I don't recognize or sometimes, you know, you can outsource uh, the radiology departments when someone else looks at the picture and then then sometimes I have to call the, my friends <laughs> at, at my own radiology department and ask them. In terms of a physical exam, what's usually part of your physical exam when these patients come to you? Well, obviously I look uh, in the nose and I can come back to that, but 
also obviously an oral exam. And I don't mean I ask them questions, but I mean that I look them in the mouth and uh, see how their teeth are. And if they had dental procedures and or if they're swollen or if they have pain, I, I actually um, sump them with my spatula uh, over the teeth and see if they uh, feel any pain. And then when I look them inside the nose, actually I start with the anterior rhinoscopy also because I'm getting older, but I've also started with always uh, looking with the microscope because we we have the microscope in all our rooms because we switch between um, people who do the autosurgery and stuff like that. And it's really useful to look with a microscope with the anterior rhinoscopy. I would highly recommend it, actually. So you have your nasal speculum in the nose and then you are visializing with the microscope. I mean, that's how I take out foreign bodies <laughs> from yeah, noses yeah, yeah. and children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, Tell me, what do you see more? Like, what information do you get? Obviously, if you want to examine the whole nose, you have to use endoscopy. It's uh, you, you can't really lose that. But you can see further in the nose with uh, the microscope. Often you can see up into the middle meatus. You can see almost all the way back to the epipharynx. And I also use it uh, in nosebleeds. Uh, it's so much easier to see um, uh, dilated vessels or other weird areas. Yeah, it's funny how much... Even like the anterior part of the nose, we might miss just putting a scope straight in. You know what I mean? When you're with a scope and you're going to that turbinate, you know, you, and, and you're not even always even seeing at the head of the inferior turbinate, you just go right in. And, and I always, always try to do the anterior rhinoscopy first with the microscope. With the so. microscope. That's interesting. Does that change or help you adjust what you're looking for or how you might then perform your nasal endoscopy? Not really. I, I normally start with actually the flexible endoscope. And if I sometimes feel I have to move on with a rigid endoscope, then I'll do that. But mainly I do rigid endoscopy in people I've already done surgery on. And when I want to see, uh, because if, if you haven't had surgery in your nose, you can basically reach everything. You can visualize all parts of the nose with a flexible endoscope. Do you usually uh, decongest the nose? Do you first take a look without decongestion and then look after? What do you like to do? Yeah, I, I do the anterior uh, rhinoscopy first. Then it suits me very fine to spray them right after because then I talk a lot. And so I can just <laughs> uh, let the time pass and they will decongest. And if I need to, then I'll put in uh, cotton uh, swabs or uh, small cut triangles of gauze with decongestant as well where I need them to be, in the middle meatus or the inferior meatus, or most often the middle. Do you usually just use oxymetazoline, or what do, you, what do you use in your clinic? Yeah, I should have looked up what the generic name is, because it's, uh, let me see, I think it's uh, oxymetazoline. It's uh, called nafasolin uh, <laughs> uh, in, in uh, Swedish. I mean, the, the brand name, which is funny, because nafas in Arabic means uh, breathe through your nose, as far as I know. No, it's actually, I just checked it. It's, it's Nafasolin is the uh, generic name as well. And so what do you usually find with your scope in? You know, I think of swelling, I think of pus, what else? I don't know what the translation would be. I, we call it Valgata in Swedish. It means the uh, street of pus. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, if you see a, a line of pus coming from one of the sinuses, uh, that's a strong indication of that something is wrong. You obviously look for polyps, you look for tumors, you look for blood. The gentleman that who had the dental issues that came in, the one that we referenced at the beginning, what did his scope look like? It didn't look that great because he had such a large mucosal from his maxillary sinus 
So first of all, his nose was filled with pus. And then, because I didn't meet him before, I just saw the pictures, I heard him referenced, and I said, I, I can do the surgery. Uh, so I actually didn't meet him until just before the surgery. I didn't feel I had the need to. So uh, I had to actually take down the wall. I, it was very easy because it was very thin from the expansion. So I, I could just actually use, uh, what do you call it, an elevator just to push it. Uh, when because uh, his eye was very swollen and uh, he couldn't open it really and he had double vision but then uh, when you start going up to the frontonasal recess and then the pus started to drain and his eye sank back in so that's that's when you're happy and yeah. <laughs> you, f- you feel you yeah. feel good you feel you're doing something right <laughs> And in terms of the patients that come to you in clinic, for the ones that say don't have imaging, at that visit, do you get imaging? Do you send them home with antibiotics? Do you culture the pus? What are your next steps? I also knew this, this question was going to come, and it's it's highly dependent on how they present themselves. So I, it's it's hard to give a generic answer to that. If there's something, uh, and they they had it for a long time, they haven't had any imaging, which is actually rare when I see them, because normally they pass a few institutions on the way, and, and there are some pictures, radiography taken. But obviously I think about doing it, but I, I do take cultures. If there's pus, I always culture. And sometimes I do it when there's not, because I want to see if there's something else wrong. If they have a history of other infections, I try to do an immunology assessment. I don't know if you do the um, MBL, menos binding lectin, also Swedish. <laughs> it's a molecule. You can you can have a deficiency of, of this uh, MBL, and that can predispose you. And if you ask the infectionists, they say that it doesn't really matter if you don't have an Ig deficiency as well. But in my experience, I've had some patients with severe runny noses, uh, with pus and all kinds of weird bacteria. And the only thing I can find is the MBL deficiency that we can't do anything about, but it's... It's It's at least information. Yeah. And I've had a few of those actually, but how important it is, I can't really tell you. And and also the question was, when do I do imaging? Uh, If they have had longstanding problems pain and I can't resolve it because sometimes they haven't rinsed enough and they haven't used the cortisone spray. And I started by telling them that you have to do this, you have to do the rinses, you have to do the cortisone spray, otherwise I won't see you basically or I won't go the next step. Yeah. In terms of longstanding, I usually think of the 12 weeks, the three months of symptoms. So yeah, that's that's the definition of chronic sinusitis. So, so it depends on how troubled they are, I mean, how much pain they are in or how, how little they can breathe through the noses, you always have to weigh in all the symptoms. Yeah. The patients that you've cultured, do you start them on empiric antibiotics in that clinic visit or do you wait for the culture to come back? Also depends on your symptoms because if you have low-grade symptoms and you've had them for a long time, then I absolutely wait for the culture to come back. And if the culture is what we call blank, if they if it doesn't show anything, and also, I've had this discussion with our microbiology department because sometimes we ask, is there anything growing here? And they answer, uh, nothing that is clinically relevant. And sometimes I want to decide what is clinically relevant because... I, You're looking at the nose and the patient. Yeah, and one of these uh, girls who had this MBL deficiency, 
and I've had cultural for for several. I know I, I don't know how many times. And one time I asked them just answer everything that grows, and I'll be the judge of what's clinically relevant. And they still said it was blank. And then one of my colleagues asked a direct question: Is it Klebsiella ossena? And it was. And I just had wished they told me that before. In terms of the sinus rinses, have any ever used antibiotic in the rinses, like Bactroban or Repyrocene or... It's not the tradition in Sweden. I'm not opposed to it at all, but I don't have any experience with it. I do sometimes use budesonide uh, in the rinses, but I've never done the antibiotics. Are, are you familiar with that? I've used it for um, my cystic fibrosis patients, depending on what their cultures are. Sometimes the pharmacies can do tobramycin irrigations prep for them. Occasionally, maybe in my PCD, my primary ciliary dyskinesia kids, but not routinely. Um, I've done uh, mupyrocene or Bactroban rinses, um, meaning I'll have the family, because my, my practice is it's all children. So a little bit of mupyrocene or um, Bactroban ointment in the rinse bottle if they're growing staff or if there's a lot of inflammation, sometimes I'll have them do that just for like a week, you know, something like that. But nothing nebulized or anything and not anything routinely. And other than those three categories, I have not. Budesonide rinses, yes. You know, most of the time insurance will be okay, but every once in a while I've had to do the phone call and discuss and sometimes they approve it, sometimes they don't. In terms of CTs, do you have in-office imaging? How does the CT work in Sweden? And so is here where I'm unsure about the nomenclature. So in-office means that I have it right where I'm at. Yeah, like in your clinic. No, not in my clinic, but the radiology department is not that far, you know. So for the sinuses, we have access to three types of scans. We have the old one. That's a, we never do just plain x-rays. It's, uh, it's very old, but I hope. People don't do that because there's a low dose. That's, you know, you say that, but every once in a while, I'd have patients refer to me having had x-rays um, that was ordered by their primary care. And I think that for some people, maybe I'm like, why did they order this? We don't use it. I don't know what to do with this information. We have a report on it and it talks about there's something there that shows something consistent with chronic sinusitis. And I'm like, and then the family, you know, really think there's something going on. And then I'm like, well, maybe they just do it because they need something right? Like the, the symptoms are there and, and this is what they have access to. But who does those? I mean, isn't there, there should be a radiologist who says, I can't use them for anything. You this know? isn't helpful. Yeah, this is not helpful. Yeah. But so we have the low-dose CT, which I'm not, I'm not a fan of. We have the other better, higher-dose CT that um, we can use for navigation. And then I'm very fond of using the cone beam CT, the CBCT which is also low-dose, but much better pictures than the ordinary uh, low-dose CT. So that's not at all exclusively, but I use uh, the CBCT far more than I use any other type of CT because you can actually do navigation with CBCT as well. Do you have a system? How do you normally look at your CT sinus scans? And uh, what do you find are some of the characteristics that you see with patients with chronic parental sinusitis? Uh, how I look at them. I mean, nowadays, I think I'm more get of, a, I mean, a general uh, impression of how they are. But obviously, you can use the Lund-McKay score. I mean, you, you can grade them. And if I if I uh, am doing surgery, I always look at them with the acronym uh, CLOSE. The cribriform plates, the lamina papillacea, the always for uh, onodi cells, which is actually not called anymore, and but also the optic nerve. 
and S is the, for uh, the skull base and also sphenoid sinus, and E is for ethmoidal arteries. It's what I always do when I, I'm doing surgery, and then I also, and I forget the acronym for that now, but this the, the newer classification of you know how the uh, the tilt of the uh, olfactory is starts with a G, and I wish I, I remembered because I sometimes have lectures about it, but now because I'm on a podcast, I forget it. But the tilt of the fovea etmoidalis, it says if it's too horizontal, it's it's a much higher risk to penetrate up into the skull than if it's just it goes down more vertically. And so over 45 degrees, if you have time later, I can look it up. I know, I'm, tr- I, I, I'm trying to look that and you can, you can You can try to inject <laughs> it here when I'm, when I'm actually uh, That's okay. <laughs> looking yeah. for, yeah. Also, when I, I, I try to see how, I mean, how much air is it? Are they totally filled? Are there bony destructions? Is there any kind of process that I need to be aware of? Is there another explanation for it? Is it on both sides? Is it, uh, you know, is it one-sided, which is more, uh, it doesn't have to be malignant, but it means it makes me think about like Schneiderian papillomas or like inverted papilloma and stuff like that. So that's some things I look for. Yeah. And when do you ever consider getting an MRI in these patients? If I'm in doubt, if there's invasion, if, if there's bony erosion, especially along the skull base or in the sphenoid sinus or in the, I mean, the back of the posterior table of the frontal sinus. Or if I'm thinking it's a tumor, then, then I will also do an MRI, yeah. But not necessarily for an inverted papilloma, uh, if it's small, uh, but if it's something else, yeah. We do a lot of biopsies, of course, in office uh, biopsies as well. In terms of uh, pathology, I think of, you know, history of sinus surgery, in kids, we would see the occasional fibrous dysplasia or ossifying fibroma. Um, what other pathologies do you see in your practice that can lead to the chronic frontal had cystic fibrosis? Occasionally, not common, but occasionally in some of my kids, I had two or three that I can think of in the last 10 years that that was their main issue, but a lot of them had had surgery before. So I, I don't know if I can give you a clear answer on that one. I, we see all kinds of stuff. Fibrous uh, dysplasia is not that common in where I I've seen a few patients, but it's not that many. Yeah. We saw, you know, it was ossifying uh, fibroma that was a little bit more common in our adolescent males. More of a, no, we saw some in, in some of our girls too, but it'd be like a once a year uh, new patient. But you're right, fibrous dysplasia wasn't as common. It was like a rare finding. Yeah, and also fine for Brahma, I've not seen that much, but we're not that big, you know, we, because we're the third biggest hospital in Sweden, but still the whole southern region is 1.4 million people and and many don't come to us primarily we are the university hospital for for the region but we don't have a ton of patients you know so um, yeah and those are kind of those are rare so everything that's uncommon we 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 see them probably less than you do yeah yeah let's say you did do antibiotics for the patient in clinic how many days do you usually give depends also uh 7 to 10 days depending uh sometimes if they're getting partial resolution of their symptoms, I can prolong it. Then there are the other cases where we do the long-term antibiotic treatment. So sometimes there are three, but more often there are six months with uh, macrolide, you call that in English as well. Mm-hmm. But norm- normally, I first I try, you know, with rinses and spray and then about seven to 10 days treatment or sometimes 14, but not much more than that. Are oral steroids part of your treatment plan ever? Sometimes, yes. Uh, this patient that we referenced uh, before, 
he got some oral steroids as well when he, uh, he was admitted. Did it help with his eye and his swelling? Actually, what helped was when we drained the pus. <laughs> so, so, but I, I'd like to think that it helped because you don't get the swelling afterwards because it's always hard. That's the hardest part with frontal sinus surgery. The hardest part is to get it to stay open. Often it's not that difficult to open it up, but it's hard to get it to remain open. That's an ongoing discussion all the time. How do we do it the best? So let's let's talk about some of the surgical approaches. So for frontal work, do you always use navigation? Is that always part of your setup? I actually use navigation as often as I can and always try to tell the residents to do it as well because, yes, it costs money, but also if you use it on the simpler cases, then when you get to the difficult cases, you already know what you're doing and you're not practicing two things at the same time because you already know how to work in navigation. So for simple surgery, I don't do it. And especially if I don't have anyone with me, but normally there should be a resident. And then often I try to hook up the navigation system. Yeah. If I have a scan that's fine cut, which most of them are nowadays, thankfully, and I have access to a navigation system, I use it. And and I, I totally agree with your point of if you know how to work your machine and those reps are going to come in with as many setups as you can get in when it's, you know, 10 p.m. at night or something and you have a pot that's got to go, then I'm not sitting here like, well, is the tech here that knows how to set it up? Can I get a rep here? No, no, it's me. So Yeah, and you also have to know how to work the machine. Yeah, and that's the last thing I want to have to think about is being limited by that because that's somewhat a little bit of my control. You have to know how to get the pictures in. You have to know how to adjust the settings, the contrast, the lighting, and uh, yeah. Yeah, navigate the instruments, right? How many times have we have everything set up and we can't get the straight section to navigate? Like, what are the little tips and tricks for that? You know, is it the cord? Maybe, but there could be about three other things we have to do. Yeah, sometimes you just need to move the screen further away because (laughs) that's actually happened because it was, yeah. It was too clear, yeah. And then, so tell me about your approach to the frontals. Um, What scopes do you like? What instruments do you like? Or if you're teaching your residents, what are some of the pearls that you tell them about frontal sinus work? You have to ask them if I say something good. But uh, (laughs) I try to use the zero degree scope as as long as I can. And more often than not, you can actually do almost the whole of the surgery with the zero degree scope. But then you have to have vision. So... I normally I switch to a 45 or 70 degree actually uh, scope when I try to see what I've done <laughs> and uh, also try to see if there's something more I need to take down if there's another wall or some piece of mucosal debris that I need to remove. But I tend to use the zero degree scope mostly when I'm doing the surgery and then I can switch and I can sometimes I do the the final parts with an angle scope. Yeah. I don't like switching back and forth a lot either. I like to do as much surgery as I can with the zero and then uh, graduate up depending on why I'm there and what I'm doing. I find a good shoulder roll. If I know I'm going to be in the frontals, I find a good shoulder roll really helps me um, get the view as well. And then, um, you know, in terms of instruments, they have nice angled sections these days, which is great. The hosemen and the chain carousel, do you use that? Or are they called anything different? The hosemen, uh, yeah, which the is Yeah, the hosemen like a- we use. The, we call it the baby hosemen. Maybe it's not the, the correct term. Because sometimes I've discovered that what we call our instruments is not really what they're called in, uh, in the catalog. So we have one of those. It uh, looks almost like a mushroom punch, but yeah, with a point at the end, yeah. But we also have actually angled mushrooms as well. 
we have the what we call the giraffe forceps. Uh, I use the uh, curettes. I really like that because you can feel what you're doing. You can feel in your fingers what actually how much pressure we're applying, and also you, you because you're using it back to front, so it feels safe to use it. And I try not to, if I can. I mean, it's obvious to you, but maybe not some of the listeners. But I try not to. Um, tear the mucosa all the way around like in a circular fashion because I'm always uh, I don't I don't really like when it scars over what tips do you have for mucosal sparing especially in the recess do you have any tips or tricks or things that you found work well or hey be careful of this be careful not to try tear stuff try to bite and try to have instruments that are actually sharp Sometimes you use the sickle knife sometimes. For, I mean, not for the frontal recess, but you have what we call a sickle knife. Yeah. I once got the sickle knife and I said, it's not working. It's very slow. Yeah, it says it's sickle knife slow here on the... On, and I was like, no, that doesn't exist. Someone must have said that this is a slow knife and they just put it back. They marked it up for sharpening and then they just put it back and wrote sickle knife slow. So yeah, no, you have to have sharp instruments and try not to tear. Also, if you cut mucosa and you get it stuck in your forceps, uh, don't try to pull it towards you. Try to push it away. In that way, it might, you know, go off easier and not tear away the whole part of mucosa closest to you. So, do you ever use angled microdebriders? Yes. Yeah, I do. It can cut well, but I have to make sure I can see. And sometimes just being able to see where the blade is can be really hard because there's not any room. So. It's helpful, but yeah. I don't often use, uh, so I have to uh, correct myself there. When I, I almost always use the 12 angle, so it's not really angled, the 12 degree angle. When I do the frontal sinus, I almost never use an angled debrider. It's not wrong to do it, but I normally don't do it. I use angled burrs when I have to, to get the frontal beak down. But that's about it, I think, about how much power tools I want to put up there. Yeah. I think I use uh, more for that anterior ethmoid cells because I find that that's probably one of the hardest parts of the surgery. Like in sinus surgery, you know, posterior ethmoids is probably the easiest, you know, and then, you know, max and sphenoid, I feel it can be tied. But that anterior ethmoid is something that I feel like I didn't really appreciate the difficulty until I was out in practice. Like, I don't think I appreciated that as a trainee. That you don't get high enough up. Yeah, or... high enough, you know, and, and then it's like, okay, this is why I'm working in a hole. So in, in terms of any tricks for when you drill, and actually before we get to that question, I wanted to ask you, how do you decide how much frontal sinus work to do? Is it ever enough just to do a good onsenectomy and then maxillary or how do you know how far to go? It's also a very good question, and it also depends on how it has presented itself. And what I think the underlying problem is, sometimes it can be enough. If I think the problem is actually coming from down below, uh, that is uh, the maxillary sinus problem or, uh, you know, ethmoids. But if not, then I don't think it's enough, obviously. <laughs> but sometimes it's, it's enough and you can just get more space there for the drainage pathways to work as intended <laughs> or hopefully as intended. And and then sometimes I just try to put a suction up and see is there passage and I try to not affect the mucosa too much uh, because I'm afraid of scarring. I, I mean, I'm not afraid, afraid, but you know, I don't, I don't like it and I don't want to uh, give them problems that I didn't have before. Because sometimes if it scars enough, then you have to do much larger frontal sinus surgery. You have to do a draft three or something. It's a, if I can avoid it, I'll try. 
So do you use stents or, you know, how do you keep it from scarring? Do you put anything up there? Are you using propels? Are you using silicone? I only have my thumbs and I cross them very hard. No, it's, uh, <laughs> no, it's, uh, no, actually the uh, propel stents, we don't have access to them yet. They're coming, but we don't have them. And for this patient that we refer to a number of times now, uh, I wish I had them, but I didn't. So I went the old school way and I put up, you know, a one centimeter gauze strip with uh, antibacterial ointment. And you can use this ointment just sometimes I've just actually took a syringe and put it on a um, 70 degree angle suction catheter and deposited the ointment up there. So it's a combination of oxytetracycline and hydrocortisone. And normally I put them on the the strips of gauze and I put them up as for, and for this patient, it seems to have worked. I, I removed them. And it's also an ongoing discussion. How long should you keep them? And so I, I, I held my finger up in the air and decided two days. And so I removed it and, and I had him at the outpatient clinic and looked at him and um, it looked fine. It, it was open. His eye was better and better. So I'm seeing him again next week and hopefully it's... Um, it stays. <laughs> I was going to ask how soon after surgery, if, if the frontal recess is going to scar, how far out have you seen that happen? We... You know, early on, we're like, okay, if it's not here at a week, it's probably okay. But I find that the longer you are in practice or the more patients you see in follow-up, you're like, oh, dang, it's been two months. It looked good like three weeks ago. And then it's like, well, do I do anything? Do we do steroids? Is it soft? Is it just swelling? Or do we just need to get back from rinses? And then we're kind of kicking the can, especially in a patient that's not symptomatic. Yes. It's a very hard thing to answer as well. Yeah, I, I've seen one. And I did everything I could. And he had a large opening. I could, is an expression in Sweden, I could throw my hat in it. But when I saw him a week later, everything was swollen. He had gotten, um, you know, some swollen mucosa. So it was almost like, you know, polyps there. And he wasn't a polyp patient. But it was a mucosal. But I've seen a range from one week to several months. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they're chronic, I guess, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and in terms of um, other techniques or procedures. Do you ever use balloons in the frontal sinus in your practice? Is that ever part of your practice? I used to use uh, more balloons than I do now. Now I now I basically don't. Uh, but it's also because we're a small country and the best balloons we had uh, went out of market and I couldn't find a substitute. I, I looked for a while. I was some courses and, and uh, in contact with a few companies and I couldn't really find anything I, I liked because if you're doing balloons, I don't know what your opinion is, but I like to have the guide wire. If I need to put a hard tip of an object up the frontonasal recess anyway, then I might as well do surgery. So that's my opinion. And yeah, I don't, you know, I don't have as much experience either. Um, my practice is pediatrics. Um, I did a lot of pediatric chronic sinus stuff, and I just didn't. One of my partners actually, she uh, had a lot more experience, and so. For me, it was like, well, like you said, if the light tip or the guide wire, all that stuff, if I'm not doing it all the time, I just didn't want to end up in the eyes. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to end up in the wrong place. So I just didn't use them as much. I mean, I used it a handful of times that I can think yeah. of. I, so. just, I just don't find them all that useful in the setting that we have in Sweden. I, do, I think you do more in office stuff. But I, I mean, in my setting, I don't see any use for them in sphenoids, which is a fairly easy sinus to reach. I don't see a reason for it to do it in, in the maxillary sinus. But in, I mean, frontal sinus, 
in barotrauma patients. I would see there, there's uh, something I would use if I had a good um, balloon uh, because you don't scar as much and, and it's an easy identifiable problem that you can probably solve quite easily with a balloon. But if it's other stuff like polyps or other underlying conditions, I can't really see the use. It's better, in my view, it's better to open up. Yeah. You know, when we were at ESPO, there was a lot more talk, I think, about balloons for acute complications of sinusitis, like POTS and intracranial. There were some talks on that. But even, you know, again, it's access and, you know, having all that stuff. I would still, and I do, <laughs> open up what I consider to be the proper way. But I, people can feel free to disagree, but it's, it's, it's my point of view. Yeah. As we start to round things out, any final tips or pearls on chronic frontal sinusitis? No, I don't know. <laughs> I had a I had a pearl for nosebleeds, but that's that's not. Oh well, my, tell us your uh, pearl for nosebleeds. My that's pearl a- for nosebleeds is one that I got from a senior colleague of mine one night when I was younger, and I had had three patients bleed on me the same night, and I couldn't find any you know, uh, hospital garments that would suit me. It was all dresses. And I, I mean, I don't, it, just, it would be okay, I guess, but it's, and he told me that if you have someone, because and also people are unique and I can't say that I can generalize, but in Sweden, often it's the older men that keep talking, even though uh, blood is running from the nose and they still have to say something funny or something. And then they spray the blood all over you. And so you take a piece of gauze you fold it only two times, you ask them to bite down on it, and you put it under the, the nostril that's bleeding. It prevents you from getting soaked in blood. They can spray it on you. You tell them it's uh, because I don't want you to get a lot of blood in your mouth, but really it's for you. And uh, and then they're not talking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good tip. <laughs> yeah. Oh, goodness. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to come on to the show, Jens. Thank you for having me. It was wonderful to catch up. Yeah, yeah, you too. For um, any of our listeners that want to know more about you, your hospital, or your practice, um, are you on any social media or any websites? Obviously, they can email Backtable, and I can always forward information to you. No, I'm not. I only have a, you know, a private Facebook account. Since I work in public health care, and I'm not planning to move, I don't need to promote myself in any way, so uh, I am happy with the anonymity that I, uh, that I enjoy here. So it's, uh, that sounds good. That yeah. sounds good. All right. Well, I think it's a wrap. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's Version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinski. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.